Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Our guests today are Neil Patrick Harris and Mark Kudish, currently appearing in Stephen Sondheim's Assassins at Studio 54 here in New York. Just by way of introduction, Neil started, of course, in television, playing the role of Doogie Hauser in Doogie Hauser M.D. This is Neil's third time on Broadway in as many years. He has been the MC in Cabaret and starred opposite Anne H. in Proof. Now he's appearing as Lee Harvey Oswald and also in a separate role as the Balladeer in Assassins. Mark played Trevor Graydon in Thoroughly Modern Millie, for which he received Tony, Drama Desk, and Outer Circle Critics nominations. And you may remember him from television as Conrad Birdie in the television movie of Bye Bye Birdie opposite Jason Alexander and Vanessa Williams. Welcome to both of you to XM28 and on Broadway. Thank you. thanks. Welcome, guys. Assassins is a musical that has been around for many years but has only reached Broadway now. As we begin, could you take a moment to tell us about the show, what the show's about, and and how your roles fit into it. Go for it. Sure. Um, I play the balladeer, um, sort of the voice of reason, the voice of positivity that sings about the assassins. Um, kind of, uh, I calm the I calm the audience down when things get a little too crazy, and and sort of narrate about the history of them. And uh, and I, Mark juxtaposes me as the proprietor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're like yin and yang in the show. We really are. It's like it's it's two sides to any person's personality, you know. Or at least I feel it's like what is you know. I think everybody walks the fine line between having their their sense of consciousness and morality, and then um, passion that we all feel. Passion that doesn't necessarily lie in tune with consequence. And I think that's what we are on that stage. We're siding both sides. You know, he's offering the history of the. Um, assassins and you know but from a, a moralistic point of view and i am supporting what their passions were i mean i'm i guess essentially like their dark angel well, sort of the enabler yeah on, on a very basic level for those not familiar with the show it's basically the story of nine assassins or would-be assassins of american presidents as told from uh, the point of view of john wilkes booth all the way up to the most recent and you, Mark, are kind of the person running a, a shooting gallery, if you right. will, in a, an amusement park right. and inviting people to come up with rifles and shoot the president. Mm-hmm. There's a line at the beginning that you deliver. Well, it's great. Everybody's got the right to be happy. I mean, you know, it starts with, hey, pal, feeling blue, don't know what to do. Hey, pal, I mean you. Come here and shoot a president. Um, like Neil said, I'm the enabler. You know, um, everybody's choices are their own. I'm just there to offer a helping hand. <laughs> and that's really, I think, the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. And the whole feel of the piece now really is it's this rundown, almost ghost-like um, carnival, you know, with a giant wooden roller coaster in the background and these old, decrepit, like, small shooting galleries that ultimately become almost like cells for each of the assassins. Um, and Neil and I really are. We're like the metaphorical... We are we are physical metaphor in the show, until obviously the turning point. Yeah, I, I'm I'm always trying to show the audience how inept they all were, as much as their deeds were horrific. That I I spout out random facts about them that kind of are, are inconsequential, and I'm always smiling and saying, "Don't worry, you know, it's all going to be okay." 
they may have succeeded in killing the president, but nothing really came of it. They, you know, they said, look at this funny, silly little guy. So my glibness gets greater and greater as the show goes on until all the assassins who are now in the cells that Mark was talking about, uh, whether they succeeded or not, they're, they're still angry and they're still, you know, trying to, trying to make a difference and be recognized and be remembered. And then, and then finally they all break through and sort of surround me and engulf me and sort of spit me out as Lee Harvey Oswald for this big, uh, scene 16 where, uh, John Wilkes Booth convinces me to kill Kennedy instead of myself so that they will go on and, and live in infamy. Now, the production has been wildly acclaimed. People are just ecstatic to finally see it reach the level of recognition that it has. But even in comments that you just make sitting here about, oh, these guys tried or succeeded to kill the presidents, but it's it's really okay, um, in what is probably always a difficult political climate at any time to do a show like this, have you, had res- have you directly had responses from people about the darkness of this show and what the darkness of this show is no at question. this particular time in American history. Yeah, and the show doesn't provide a through line for you to come up with a conclusion at the end of the show. It's sort of a vignette variety style uh, in its in its structure. There'll be a, a long ensemble song and then a monologue with no singing and then a barbershop quartet by four people and then the ensemble will sing a song and then you'll have another monologue. So it's always shifting in its structure. So... Um, I don't know. What's yeah. Point? Well, but I mean, I think that people definitely have feelings about it. I mean, there are, everybody's going to walk away with their own opinion. Some people think that we're glorifying their actions. Some people don't see that there's a place for something like this. People will wonder if there's ever a right time for this show to be going on. I think this is the right time for it. And I think the reason that the show has been embraced now... Um, as when it originally opened 13 years ago to mostly negative reviews is because they wrote something that was ultimately before its time. They wrote a piece that society wasn't ready for yet, but we're there now. I mean, small things like Bick. I think originally people really criticized um, uh, Sam Bick, one of the assassins played by Mario Cantone in the show, has a comment where he says, you know, I'm going to, you know, fly a plane into the White House and incinerate Dick Nixon. It's going to make the news. And I think initially people thought it was a glib joke. But we hear that now, and we realize that it's a potent weapon. Not only has someone done that, but we realize the real, dear consequence of that action. And to hear someone speak it before the action, and to see where that idea that ultimately can become devastated culminated from, is very shocking, I think, because ultimately what the show does is it humanizes these people that we call monsters. And in effect, it's easy to separate yourself from those people overseas with all that craziness going on, but this is our own history. And so any one of those crazy people could be your next-door neighbor. And we are just as a part of the dissonance and a sense of disenfranchisement as any other country in the world. And I think that you know, especially where we are now in our whole feeling and in, in, in where we are in our politics and, and where we are in our confusion of what is right and wrong in the world. This show really does have a powerful voice that makes people rise either in favor or against it. It's it's often been thought that one of the reasons that the show did not move on from its original production at Playwrights Horizons into a larger production was the timing of it being done during the first mm-hmm. uh, gu- during the Gulf War. Now, this production, 
was slated to happen at least once before at the Roundabout Theatre Company, who's producing at Studio 54. Now, Neil, as I understand it, you've been involved in workshops and development of this production since the beginning. Mark, have you, have you been involved no. as long? Take it so, away, Neil. So, Neil, can, <laughs> you, can you talk a little bit about the journey it's taken in terms of Roundabout bringing this production to the stage? Sure. I was asked to be in the first workshop of it that was three years ago, and... Uh, it was mainly for all of them to just see how it still held up, the material. And it was strong. And at that time, it was Michael C. Hall was doing it, and Lisa Loeb was squeaky from, and Mario was still part of it. Becky Ann Baker was still part of it. And what's that guy's name from Angels in America that won a Tony's? Jeffrey? No. Steven Spinella? Steven Spinella oh. was Gateau. Oh. Yeah. And it was, and it, and it played really well. Joe Montello wasn't able to direct it for a year because of prior commitments that he had, uh, and so it was just we did a workshop and it went great. And then uh, a year went by and we did another workshop, and um, this was a little more substantial, and it, it was equally as exciting. That's the interesting thing about the piece. I think that the music and the book. I think John Weidman's book is exceptional in the show. Um, there are some lengthy book scenes, one between Squeaky Frome and, and Sarah Jane Moore that I think is one of the best written book scenes in a musical that's been written. Um, and Sam Bick's monologues are terrific as well. Um, so just doing a, a workshop of it, we were su- surprised at how complete the show felt. I mean, we finished and we were like all nodded our heads and mm-hmm. thought, well, this is great. <laughs> now what? And so it was scheduled to go in November, I think, of, of 2001. And we were going to start rehearsals in October, and then uh, and then nine eleven happened, and two days later we uh, they all got together, or probably the day after they all got together. But I got a call a couple days later, and they had indefinitely postponed it, just because you know you you want to show the piece without a social context that's so heavy handed that you're not going to be able to listen to the piece. To hear Sam Bick say these monologues and rant about his, how, you know, unwelcome he feels in the world and that he's going to fly a plane into the White House after 9-11, it just seemed like a horrible slap Mm -hmm. in the face. It seemed really intentionally uh, snubbing the government because of what had just happened. And and Steve Sondheim, I know, just they didn't want people to not enjoy the show because of social circumstance. Which is different from sort of a political climate, you know, because now the world is a different place. And so now, two years later, we're doing it. Now it just feels better. Like, you can appreciate the gravity of what he's saying without it affecting you in in your core. And having when we did the workshop, we did a third reading of it right after, I mean, I guess a month after 9-11, just to see how it sounded. Because Todd Hames really, really wanted this piece to be seen. And he, yeah. in hindsight, even tells us now that he wished he would have gone ahead and done it then anyway. Mm-hmm. Because he feels strongly about the piece as a piece. But everyone was worried about just how it would be perceived. But I will say, in that third reading that we did, when Mario read those lines, it was just an uncomfortable feeling about stuff like that. And it was written long before any mm-hmm. of that happened. So it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be so disturbing <laughs> and and i think having a little time pass makes it m- makes it not so uh horrible and and i'm just thrilled i mean while we were doing it rehearsing it and preparing it we all thought it was great but we all we all were very aware that that the critics could despise it and and the audiences could turn from it and to be quite honest half of our previews were just 
they didn't want to like the show. And, and so it was fun to do this process and to finish with positive response and a really wonderful article by Frank Rich saying how poignant the show is now and yeah. validating the show in the press because now audiences are coming to sort of appreciate the content as opposed to judging it as harshly as they were initially. That's the best part of it right now, I think. You know, this is the right time for the show. I mean, all things happen for hopefully the right reasons. And I think in this given case, this was the time for the show to be heard. It's far enough after 9-11 that, you know, I mean, there's enough distance from it that the wound is not that open, but it's still there. Mm. But there is also that sense of dissonance and confusion. Things have not necessarily gone how we may have hoped. We're in a, a war situation that is not as clean as would have been liked in the beginning. There are a lot of questions about why certain things are continuing on. People, you know, I mean, we're, we're at a, a year of uh, re-election. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a very powerful time to be asking questions when a lot of questions are being raised. And um, I know that coming into it, I really wanted to do it. You know, I had known about, you know, the, the productions that were happening before. And this time around, I just knew that I wanted to do it because I had my own feelings about everything going on. You know, my own confusion about things and my own voice that I kind of wanted to shout and um, that's what I think we all really love about this piece when we were in rehearsals is that it doesn't give you any answers. It probably raises a lot more questions. We're not saying there's a right or wrong thing, but it's like putting it out there and saying, what do you think? Hmm. You know, and to be able to do that in the theater when, you know, obviously the theater, I mean, in my experience of being on Broadway, it has become more and more... Um, I don't want to say com like commercial, but it's become larger, big businesses and corporate. But definitely become more corporate. That we know. Sure. And so, this is a piece that has a voice that is uniquely its own. We're at the right time right now for what this piece is, and I think that um, we're all we were all very proud to be a part of what this was is, and you know even I think will be years from now. Um, and I think that there's definitely. I don't know, even when we came out of this thing and we started running it, there was just a pride that we had. Sink or swim in terms of whatever the critics would say. We were proud of what we were doing. And it's that rare occasion when you're in this business, which has become so corporate or so commercially oriented, mm -hmm. that you can be a part of something that you really feel is truly artistic and actually has a unique voice. And like I said, this show is its own entity outside of a season of other shows. This exists on its own plane. There is no other show like this. And to be a part of that, I mean, Neil stuck with it for three years. Why? Because he believed in it, as everybody did. To be a part of it when I was asked to be a part of it. I mean, everybody wanted to be a part of what this was. Sink or swim, because it's the experience that really makes it great. And I think it's interesting, too. That I, I like that it doesn't have... a statement to make you know I, I think people are a little gun shy work, work. to go see the <laughs> show because they think it's going to have this real liberal agenda about assassins and justifying killing a president which it's not at all in fact you know the, the the opening and the closing are everybody's got the right to be happy and it ends with this celebratory ha ha the, the, the assassins march down center with guns and they're kind of maniacal and they're thrilled uh, you know ideas that they're succeeding and you look and you sit back and as an audience and go, well, but they didn't succeed and they're mm -hmm. not succeeding. So it almost vilifies them even more in a weird way. But, but I've talked to people who've seen it and we usually get sort of stunned reaction at the show. Yeah. You know, people don't know if it's appropriate to 
hoop and applaud after Cholga shoots somebody at the end of the song. <laughs> it's hard. Or, All of the musical numbers, uh, yeah. they button with like somebody gunshots. dying. No kidding. Yeah, hanging, somebody dies, whether it be the assassin or the president. And so, and so I've seen, you know, the end of the show is kind of stunned applause sometimes you know they don't quite know even what, how, how to process it but then I'll get a phone call the next day saying that was I'm, I'm still thinking about it and I'll see someone in the street two days after they saw the show and they say I just can't get that show out of my head Patrick I'm Stewart st- came just last night was it or the night before yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was like one of the greatest compliments he just literally came up to us and said I've been waiting for this for 13 years wow and he said I, I'm, I'm, I'm envious of all of you and it's not a perfect show. I mean, I don't no. want to sit, sit here and say, like, we're doing the greatest theater work in the history of Broadway. But it, it's, well, it is it, pretty damn good. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, a, you know, it's not a perfect show, but it's got a great group of people that are, all, that are all given a chance throughout the show to step up and take a swing at a ball and hit it out of the park. And, and thankfully, the talent level, you know, you've got some amazing players that are, that are on the team. And so love one vignette hate another the the end result i think is a really exciting provocative evening of theater and and that's what i have aspired to do growing up that's what impressed me the most you know what's really very interesting it's certainly a a very dark show in many ways it's certainly controversial in many ways Mm -hmm. uh the theater itself by pure chance i would assume studio 54 is not your typical broadway theater with the plush seats and Mm -hmm. and all that you're sitting in bentwood chairs that are kind of hard and at the end of two hours you know you're feeling it Mm -hmm. the audience feels uncomfortable walking into the theater because you're not sure what the subject how it's going to be addressed and then you're sitting uncomfortably so you really kind of emotionally uncomfortable to begin with then the show gets your emotions really going yet it has some very funny moments in it some good bits Hilarious. of laughter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And some very light, bouncy songs. You, Neil, you sing some very good, upbeat, uh, uh, bouncy songs as the balladeer. Yes. It's a very interesting, uh, kind of almost juxtaposition of, of moods and, and emotions. But isn't that what theaters should be? Uh-huh. I mean, I, 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 I tire sometimes of going to the same theaters and sitting in the same seats mm-hmm. and seeing the same curtain open and close and like, uh, you know, it sort of becomes a little monotonous, not the content of the show, but just the event of seeing the th- seeing theater. That's what I enjoyed about Cabaret so much. As you mm-hmm. came into Studio 54, this decrepit old space, right. and there were the girls were heroin addicts, and they were stretching and warming up. You didn't quite know where you were, and Assassins is not unsimilar in that way. You come into this whole structure that's kind of tipping over, and it looks like it's going to fall over, and that it's decrepit. And, and I, you know, that, that makes more of a lasting impression to me anyway. Yeah, it's probably a perfect venue for this show as well as for Cabaret because it's an uncomfortable sort of a setting to begin with, with an uncomfortable show, and I think it, it plays very well together. Agreed. Yeah. We we had talked a little bit earlier about uh, one of the songs in the show, the one that opens the show, Everybody Has the Right. Mm. I like to play that. We obviously don't have a version by you guys because it hasn't been recorded, but the original version from 13 years ago, we can play. They're much better. <laughs> can you set up the song, how that works in the show? Honestly, Mark? it's just the opening of the show. I mean, I can tell you this. You see, you know, you hear the um, hail to the chief in the background, and in the distance you see a parade or what seems to be a parade going on with confetti coming down and a crowd of people wa- waving and smiling and all of that. And then the lights just kind of come down, and there's like this kind of a harsh amber light that spills across the stage, and then up in the corner somewhere picks up the proprietor who essentially runs this carnival, if you will. Which is you. Which is me. And, I mean, the, the song speaks for itself. It's just basically him. He's introducing the audience to what they are about to receive for the evening. And he keeps 
he keeps bringing them on and, and handing them yeah. a gun. One by one, he's giving them a gun. Cholgosh. One by one, as they come on, John he's, Hinckley. you know, he's just offering them an opportunity. Again, the show is about the disenfranchised, and it's saying everybody's got the right, even you who have been told you don't. And in a sense, he's doing what the typical carnival barker does, come right up, oh, play yeah. a game. Step not, not- right up. Here's a gun. Shoot. Win a prize. Yeah, you'll win a prize. <laughs> Might be a gel cell, but you'll win something. A song from Assassins at XM28 on Broadway. We're talking today to Neil Patrick Harris, who stars in Assassins as two roles, the balladeer and Lee Harvey Oswald, and to Mark Kudish, who stars also in the show as the proprietor, the, um, what's what's the word? For your the part? enabler. The enabler. The that's the word. angel. And may I, may I just say that having just heard that, Mark, you've never sounded better. Oh, thanks, man. Well, you know, in the show we do it like a step lower, but for the recording... It was really I nice. just thought doing it, it added a little brightness, a little sparkle. That nice, I don't nice stuff. Have. Um, didn't, didn't sound anything like you. Thank you. I want to take a couple of minutes just to ask you about some of your 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 other work, Neil. Of course, people have watched you grow up on television and film to, to some degree, and really interested to know how you made the leap into theater. Was theater something that was always bubbling under as you were doing this this television and film work, or was it? Was it a point at which you said, okay, now I'm going to move into doing theater because you've got the credits, uh, including Rent and uh, the Sweeney Todd concert, which got you a lot of attention and certainly your Broadway work in Cabaret. Mm. Uh, Tell us a little about that. You know, I'm from a small town in New Mexico, so acting professionally was never even an option. And I sort of fell into a situation where I was able to be auditioned for and cast in a movie opposite Whoopi Goldberg called Clara's Heart when I was a young kid that Mark Medoff wrote. And um, that movie got me an agent and got me auditioning for other things, and I still lived in New Mexico. And we never really wanted to do a television show because it was uprooting the family so much. But then it was a Stephen Bochco show, and it was this leading part in this in this show. And so Doogie Hauser came along, and I ended up doing that. So all of it happened sort of just hap- happenstance. I mean, I, I knew what I was doing, but it was certainly nothing that my parents were enc- encouraging me to do or anything. So I was always kind of intrigued by the theater. When I when we filmed Clara's Heart, um, they all got to fly to Jamaica to film a few scenes in Jamaica, and I wasn't in those scenes, and I was very distraught. <laughs> that I didn't get to take a trip somewhere. So the producers flew our family to New York City for a big tri- our own little trip. Um, and we got to, I, I saw my first Broadway show, which was Les Miserables. And I had, I had wanted to see that previously because the, the Gavroche who originated in, in New York's Les Mis was a kid named, uh, an actor named Braden Danner, who was originally cast in Clara's Heart. Then they ended up getting a new director, and then they, they they ended up getting a new actor, and I was that new actor. So I sort of felt this kinship with this Gavroche and Les Rob and I, I went and saw the show and was just blown away. I mean, coming from Rudoso, New Mexico, which is all about football and small town, you know, values which have very little to do with the arts. Um, we had a Rudoso little theater company that performed at the Country Club in the, <laughs> you know, where they do where they have dinners. 
and uh, saw La Miz and was just blown away. I just couldn't believe of the scope of it. Not only the scope of the production, but the scope of sort of my emotional overwhelm at the fact that I'm observing this time period and all of this that's going on. And my, I remember very distinctly sitting in the back row of the orchestra and and the first act ended with, uh, you know, one day more and the flags flying and everyone's marching and singing all these different counterpoint parts that are all coming together in one, this cacophonous song. And, and I, my mouth was literally agape. Lights came up. My mouth was completely open. I just couldn't believe it. And I just, I have just re- revered it since then. The second thing I saw was James Earl Jones in Fences in L.A., which was just one of the amazing performances I've ever seen in my life. And he had done it in New York for gosh knows how long before traveling to L.A. to do it. And I'm this little white kid with my, you know, with my dad sitting in the Wilshire Theater, I believe, watching James Earl Jones teach me about this this period of history that I really didn't have any appreciation for. And I remember just sobbing at that, you know, watching James Earl Jones and Lynn Thigpen, uh, she was just crying and it was I felt so part of what they were doing and so privileged to be there that night and felt like it was a special night unlike any other and and you just can't feel that on any other medium so I think the bug bit early on and then I kept working on TV and movie stuff because that's what I had been doing you know and you just keep kind of working in the medium that you're familiar with but I'd always come to New York two or three times a year and see 12 shows in 10 days and (laughs) go back home Uh, and I just loved it I loved you know the notoriety that I received at such an early age was a bit daunting and kind of overwhelming for someone who was going through puberty because (laughs) you were kind of you were noticed whether you liked it or not wherever you went and so I kind of also enjoyed the fact that that people were were idolized and revered for those two hours but then when the show was over they just left the stage door and walked to a taxi cab and went home and 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 they sort of had their personal life uh, which I just thought was great and so I always wanted to be a part of the theater and never really had an opportunity being on the west coast until Rent came along and I originally didn't audition for Rent because I was afraid I was not going to get it (laughs) I'd listened to the album in my car for like a year straight and I knew every lyric to it and really thought it was a great a great uh show and was very passionate about the material but just didn't want to audition and not get it that would have killed me so I didn't audition and then they went back to New York came back to LA and still hadn't cast Mark and so I thought well then I have to audition and I did and I ended up getting it and doing the LA and La Jolla LA run of that and that was the first big thing I had done and then and and casting directors in New York have been quite wonderful with allowing me to not have to, to continue to work on interesting projects I mean, I have to thank Jim Carnahan and people like that and Todd Haynes at the Roundabout for, you know, being willing to cast me as the MC in Cabaret. If they were doing a movie of it, I don't think I'd even be in consideration because of the television work that I'd done in the past would have probably been considered a deficit. But um, but to them, it was fine and it was it was great. And it, it allowed me to try some full body acting that I would never have had the chance to do otherwise. And and audiences are really receptive. I don't know. Now, as an actor, moving from film and television, where you can do take after take after take, moving into live theater on a stage where everything is happening and you can't go back and redo it, yeah. how how do you how do you react to that? How how has that been for you? Thrilling, d- incredibly difficult, but not. I mean, I had seen enough theater that I appreciated what they mm-hmm. were doing, and I and I wanted to rise to that to that challenge. That is the challenge, and that's the reward. You know, you're there. You're there without a net, and if you fail, you have to figure out how to win them back. If you fumble on a line, you sense them kind of go, oh, 
he fumbled on a line. He's not so good. And you have to, like, work your way back. Take a longer pause than you did before. Go back into it. Try and win them back again. And um, and that's the goal. But when it hits, and it hits strongly, you feel it very viscerally, you know, that there's a palpable energy in the theater. I felt it as an audience, you know, staring into someone that's having an, an emotional moment. I'm staring right into them, and I know that a thousand other people are staring at that same spot, and that energy, not only do you feel as an audience, but boy, can you feel it as, an, as a performer, and that sort of fuels you to keep doing it. The challenge of, of the repetition is very, very difficult, I've found, because you have to keep it fresh, and you can't change it too much, because you've been directed to an inch of its life. I mean, you have you are you you have a little freedom to try different things, but in this structure that's already been established, and so you have to keep listening to information that you've heard a thousand times as if it's new information, and you have to keep saying information that's coming out of your head that you've said a thousand times as if you've just thought of it, and that's the trick when you're doing eight shows a week and you've done three and you're tired and you have a Saturday matinee at two and you're like, oh god, and you go do it. You have to do it because they've never seen the show and they're processing the new information as it's new. So. Do, do you think that makes you stronger or better as an actor, or is it, it just makes different? It incredibly talented. <laughs> Why are you laughing? No. <laughs> it makes it... Uh, I, it just makes it... It makes me feel more like an athlete. Mm. When you're doing TV or film, <clears throat> the actor is a, pa- a paint color on a palette, and the director is the medium, and the editor is the medium, and, and the director of photography is is the medium. They're the ones that create it. So you're just a color. You're they they sequester you into your little motorhome or trailer or dressing room, and they keep you there away from the whining and the and the trouble until they've lit the scene and they've got it all ready. And then they just quickly here we go. Let's get the actors in quick. And you come in and you film it and then you split again. Mm-hmm. So you're really far removed from the acting element of it. You sit around and you know drink coffee and read magazines for most of the day and you film for maybe an hour's worth of the day um and that's great i can't wait i want to direct as you know my my larger goal because i i would love to put all that together but as an actor it's much more fun to be doing a show in in the theater because you're just from a to z you do some audiences i like to try and get a good grasp of the audience and try and feel it because some sometimes they're just not having you and sometimes they're really having you but they won't let you know that so you think that they hate you <laughs> and you're doing the show and it's dead silent and nothing's going on and then the tumultuous applause at the end and you had no idea that they liked it so much and so it kind of toys with your emotions but but it's a it's a good thing and when I see good actors do good work watching this cast in Assassins work I'm the balladeer so I just get to sit and smile and watch them work and and their work is just tremendous. I mean, just amazingly talented people doing doing thrilling work. And I got to watch their process in rehearsals. And you really get to live with these people as a family. And and um, you don't get that opportunity in other mediums. One last question for you, Neil, which is you've gone fairly quickly from listening to shows as you drive down hmm. <laughs> the hmm. highway on the hmm. West Coast to being in them. Hmm. What shows would you like to be in, mm. or what's what's in your what's in your CD player? I guess is the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm now interested in. in I've 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 stepped into roles that have already existed, um, like the MC and Cabaret, which was one of the most well realized productions I've ever seen or been a part of. Sam Mendes did such amazing work on that. Um, 
I've done Assassins now, which was sort of originating a role that kind of already existed before. So I'm my next step, I'd like to do a show that's brand new. I'd like to really kind of originate a part and see where it goes from like a, a real workshop where the, I don't know, Michael, uh, Michael John LaCusa thing piece or something. Or if I were to revive something, I've said it before. I'm a circus guy, so I'd love to do Barnum. I'm too young for Barnum. I, I gotta, I gotta stop saying that. I gotta well, stop saying. Too young for Barnum. I'm too young to be Barnum. I'm Why? Because he, he ends, he ends old and with the, the, his death. Oh movie. hell! Powder the hair. Who cares? That's true. I could add prosthetic jowls. Why not? But I'm Seriously. all about the trapeze and the tightrope and the circus act. So uh, I would, boy, would I love doing a show like that. Maybe I should go take over. Um, EFX in in Vegas. Oh God, no, 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 no not no, so much. No, 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 no okay. not so much. Maybe I'll stay here. <laughs> well, Mark, in in your career now, you're really known more for musical comedy, more traditional Broadway shows. Well, I guess. Um, well, well, thoroughly modern Millie is totally different. But see, difference. that's um, okay. I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't care how this sounds. That's the last thing that people remember me from. It's an interesting thing in this business because it's very easy to typecast you into something. I have had the immense great fortune, and I say that not lightly, great fortune, to have been able to play a variety of characters. You know, I mean, people have a tendency to want to call me a leading man, and I've played one leading man in, you know, the amount of the, the 10, 11, 12 years on Broadway once. I do character work. It's what I've always done. And I've been fortunate to be able to play these great roles, these great personalities, very forte personalities. Um, and so, like, every time it's like, well, you're known for that, or you're known for that, or you're known for that. Um, I, I get to do a lot of comedy, which is fun, because comedy is fun. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, before this, I remember with Assassin's people like, ooh, you know, you're so dark. Ooh, you know, that's great. Who knew you were dark? And then I go, well, I did the Wild Party way back. That was pretty dark, too. Um, and Trevor Graydon, fantastic role, you know. But um, I don't know. I've been, I think, I don't know, at least from my work on the, the stage, I think I'm known for playing those kind of um, over-the-top kind of personalities, um, whether it be a musical comedy or it be dramatic. And this is a very juicy role. I mean, you are a, a very menacing presence. You come out with a gold tooth, as mm-hmm. I recall, and you have a physical presence which is very, very menacing. It has to be a great part to sink your teeth into, literally. It's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, originally, in the original, what's interesting about this show is it is a revival of sorts, but it is a new perspective, which and I think makes it very fresh. And I, the new, the newest things about the show are actually Neil Patrick and I, where Neil plays the balladeer going into Lee Harvey Oswald, which is a new point of view. Uh, my character, the proprietor, originally opened the show and then was a track in the ensemble. That's all he did, and that character never, you know, arose again. That was it. And now he is the through line throughout the show to balance off of the balladeer. So. When I was asked to do it, I mean, literally, the, the director, Joe Mantello, you know, we had met, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you if you're willing to take a chance on this with us and go in there, roll up sleeves, and see what the possibilities are for this character. And there was no ma- new material written. It was just a reassigning of pre-existing material. And it's all Joe. I mean, you know, our whole show was Joe. Joe Mantello, great director, just boom, period, end of story. And he had a very strong, specific vision of what he was looking for, and he really felt that there was this other voice that was existing in there, in the cracks, you know, so to speak. 
and it was like, you know, are you willing? Are you willing to risk? Are you willing to try? And I love to do that. I love to risk. I love to try. You know, my career, you know, unlike Neil, I've, my career has been based on the stage, which I'm really grateful for because to be able to say that you are a, cre- a career actor, a career stage actor, I think is something special. And, um, Given the opportunity to do new things, even in pre-existing material, given the opportunity to say, come in there with us and collaborate, there's nothing greater for any actor. So the real joy is not just doing it eight shows a week, but to have gotten in there with everybody else and to find this other presence, this other strand of logic that was weaving through something like that was really, really exciting. You know, I mean, I am. I'm very, very proud of it and very honored that they asked me to do it. Now, Neil mentioned that he wants to direct, but you mentioned before we got on the air that you're actually directing something right now. Yeah, I'm starting to. I'm working on this. uh, I'm doing this workshop right now through the Lark Theater Company, which is a developmental theater company here in town of a musical that I just think is really wonderful and has a great story. Um, You know, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's drama. I don't care if it's comedy. Just do it well, you know. And respect the story that the writers are trying to tell. And again, I mean, as we sort of mentioned before, because the the theater has become quite commercial and even corporate, you know, um, it's not unlike government in some ways where, you know, the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer. And, you know, uh, the risks have gotten greater to have your own unique voice. You know, they talk about, oh, there aren't writers anymore. There's no new... Oh, yes, there is. There's a lot of new writers. There's a lot of young writers, a lot of talented writers. Are you willing to take a chance? Are you willing to risk their voice? Or do you want to run the middle of the road and make money? Your choice, you know? And personally, I like to try... I like risks. And I believe in the script. I believe in the story. And I believe that if you commit to telling your story, whatever that story is... And not worry so much about your audience or how they'll take it. I think any story that is well told is worth telling. And regardless of it being maybe a commercial hit, I think whatever audience is right for that piece will come to it. Because you are telling that story with integrity. Originally when this opened, it was, you know, again, very negatively reviewed. But I think that a large part of that had to do with where we were in society. And ultimately the Gulf War was happening at that time. And it was fresh. It had just happened. So there was a sense of nationalism. And so people were like, how can you talk like this right now? Do you know with everything that's going on in the world? And I think that affected the play very strongly then. And of course, with 9-11, again, it was very fresh. And there was a sense of nationalism. And I think we're at a distance now where we have a nationalism. But what's really exciting and frightening is it's a very diverse nationalism. You know, it's almost two-sided where people have very proud, fierce points of view that are very opposing. It's perfect time for this show. But these guys didn't stray from their story. They told it how they wanted to tell it, from their hearts. And it's what makes it brilliant. And we're at a time now where we can hear it. Hey, look, Cabaret did not have the success that it had now. Chicago did not have the success that it had now. And Chicago especially, back then... Mm, you know, I mean, what 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 Kander and Eb wrote and what you know Fosse put together was a little daring. It was a little dark, and then society caught up with the idea of dysfunction being sensation, which is why it's so popular now. Society caught up. I have great respect for those people who tell their stories with integrity and don't pull punches. 
I'm glad to be able to do that. And I would like to direct absolutely more and to be able to have the chance to hopefully get in there and say, I also want to tell stories with integrity, you know, and say, I'm willing to take those risks. I think good stories are all going to be successful if well executed. Now, Unlike Neil, you've worked mostly in the theater. Absolutely. But you did do that TV movie, sure. Bye Bye Birdie. How did, how did that feel going from live theater into doing take after take after take? And well, that's the, the thing. I mean, like that? Neil said it himself, and I mean, certainly he has far more experience that it than I. Um, doing Birdie, the film, was really exciting because, you know, when you're surrounded by 500 kids, you know, we shot it up in Vancouver. To be surrounded by 500 screaming kids, that's an experience. To have kids actually ripping at you and stuff, that's an experience. <laughs> to walk through that town while you're filming it and have people saying, Hi, Mr. Birdie, is like wild. To be in the actual environment and not be worrying about sight lines or worrying about projection or really being able to be as close to realistic as you can was really exciting. And then there is, but for me, I mean, I have to say I was fortunate. I knew the role already. You know, obviously in the theater, the joy is being able to tell the whole story over and over again. You might think repetitive dulls it down, but in some ways it also really enhances it because you learn over time. And when you open yourself up to that, even when you think you've learned everything, there's going to be a night where you suddenly go on this direction that you've never been on before. And suddenly it's brand new to you again. And film is taken out of context or you stop and then you start again. And the minute you've done that scene and they cut and they say, okay, you know, um, it all looks good. You move on and you never do that again. And then they're going to take it and they're going to edit it. And the director and the editor are going to create what your performance is going to be on a stage. But as a stage actor, I mean on film, but as a stage actor, you are the editor. You are responsible for focus. You can upstage, which is what, we, what, what you know, we on the stage say, you can draw focus to yourself when you probably shouldn't be. Or then if you're crafted, you learn not only how to take the stage when it's your time, but also help focus where that, you know, um, where the attention should be at that given moment. Like a great learning lesson for me was when I was doing the wild party watching Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt's magnificent because that's a woman who is literally a walking, talking legend. And to be on the stage with her and watch her actually turn her presence off so that you forgot she was on the stage and then she would move and suddenly you realize that she's always been there and when it was time for her to take stage she took it and when it was time to share she shared it and when it was time for her to almost disappear she just did that's craft baby hmm. and there's something about that i mean maybe it's a control issue obviously but I like the idea that it's not somebody else. I remember when I watched the film and I was like, oh, why did they do that shot? Or why did they take <laughs> that take? No, there was another one that was better, you know. But on the stage, if you screw up, you know, all right, I'll come back tomorrow night and I'll correct that. Or if you have a moment that's just fantastic, you may never hit that again. But it happened for you once and even that in itself. I remember Joe came to us on opening night. I think it was opening night. And he came backstage and literally ran to everybody and went, that was perfect, that was perfect, that was incredible. Guys, the show may never be like that again, but it happened tonight. You know, and there's just something to be said for that. You know, one of my favorite things, stories, is when Gilgood and Olivier were doing, oh gosh, I can't remember the play it was. But at the end of the show, Gilgood went to Olivier's dressing room and said, my God, man, you were brilliant. That was the most brilliant performance I've ever seen. 
And Olivier looked at Gielgud and said, I have no idea what I did. <laughs> and I think that that's just, there's something brilliant about that. When you're out there and there is no hiding it, there is no editing, there is no cut, there is no point of view to point of view. It's our responsibility of a company to focus that story for an audience that is alive. I mean, the theater is about a controlled environment that seems spontaneous. And that takes craft, and that takes discipline, and that takes years of experience. And that's why I'm very proud to be a career stage actor. I notice you've said that several times. And it's great that someone like yourself who's able to get the roles, that you've been working and you've made it into a career, not just a job, but a career. Yeah, I'm fiercely proud of it. When yeah. I was in college, I was told that I'd probably be, you know, I'd, I, I would do well on soap opera, you know. <laughs> and I'm not making it, I, I'm not downing it. I'm just saying because they said, or television, because they said it's the rare occasion when someone can really work in the theater you know, regularly. And I've had, you know, my own peers say, you can't just go from Broadway show to Broadway show, which is a reality in a lot of cases. I've had the good fortune that I've been able to work regularly and do some really neat things. And it's not to say that I don't work hard. I bust my butt. But, you know, there's nothing else that I'd rather do. And from the beginning of when I discovered I wanted to be an actor, I just, it was the stage that I wanted to do. And, you know, I love the city. I love Broadway. I believe in the genre of music theater. I believe that it is a great way of telling story. And, um, you know, I'm never going to walk away from it. I think on that point, that's a, a good point to say thank you very much to both of you, Neil, and to you, Mark, for being yeah. here today at Downstage Center. Yeah. Can it's I just add something? Yes. Just, just off the cuff, you know, he wasn't kidding. He's really good. <laughs> you know, I'll say that for Neil Patrick Harris, seriously. You know, they talk about stunt casting in this business and how they'll bring personalities, television or film, onto the stage. But if there's one thing I can say about Neil, I just think that you're either a creature of the stage in some ways or you're not. And it wouldn't matter if Neil Patrick Harris was Doogie Howser or not or had done the film work that he had done or not. He would still be the balladeer and Lee Harvey Oswald in the show because he's the best man for the job. And if you've ever seen Neil on the stage, you see that. I mean, he's fantastic on the Broadway stage. The reason why casting directors call him is because he's good. Well, both of you are very good, as is the rest of the cast. The mm -hmm. cast, I think, is a superb cast. Everybody, I think at least to me, sitting in the audience, is very well cast in their respective roles. I think it comes off very, very well. It's yeah. probably the finest ensemble I've ever had the experience or joy to work with. And, and again, there's no other experience like sharing a stage with people like that. There just isn't. And in a truly remarkable and unusual piece of theater, which, thanks to the perseverance of the Roundabout Theater Company, is now reaching the widest audience it's had the opportunity to reach in its 13-year life. You know, I think that the only, the most, I guess one of the saddest things for me this season, ultimately, and I'm thrilled that this piece was done, that it's even been produced, and that it has been embraced the way that it has, because it is a great piece of theater. It just is. John Weinman's book is really phenomenal. What he says, and the fact that they wrote this when they did, is just phenomenal. I'm sorry, Stephen's music is really quite amazing. The story that they tell is, it's unique, and it will always be on its own shelf. I just, you know, the fact that it will never have the chance to be nominated or win an award is sad, because it deserves it, in my opinion. 
However, the fact that it was even done, and that's truly thanks to the Roundabout Theater in itself, is probably the greatest reward. And I really do encourage anyone who has the opportunity to see the show, not because we're in it, but because it's one of those rare jewel moments in the theater history where you get to see a point of view and you get to see a real, specific, dangerous topic be expressed. I mean, I think that's the point of the show. It's an exploration of the human values of why these people did and still do what they do. And I think if we'll ever come to a real conclusion about how to come to an end with this kind of war, we have to go to what that is in each one of us that would make us want to do it. You can't ignore it, because if you do, it's going to come back to haunt you more and more. Well, again, thank you both very much. For Downstage Center and XM28, I'm John von Susten. I'm Howard Sherman for the American Theater Wing. Please join us again next time for Downstage Center.